0: Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Hi, this is Lisa Fine. You're listening to the Great Women in Compliance on the Compliance Podcast Network with Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley. I'm Lisa Fine and today we have Letitia adu Ampuma, Director at Peverett Maxwell. Peverett Maxwell provides consul- compliance consulting and advisory services to organizations working in Africa. Letitia and I met the first time I spoke at a compliance conference at the SEC in Europe in 2016. Her talk about compliance and culture in Africa it was something that always stuck with me and after that I feel very fortunate to say that we've also become friends and I had the opportunity to spend some time with her last week in Washington DC. I'm so thrilled that we finally connected on the podcast so welcome Leticia. Thank you Lisa it's a great pleasure to be here. So just to start can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into compliance?
1: Uh, yes okay um I come from Ghana, but I had, my father was an ambassador, so I had a bit of an international childhood, which meant I, I lived in a number of countries, um, namely the UK, Ghana, Kenya, the Gambia. And I say that because I think it informed my uh, approach to career, not necessarily consciously, um, but very much subconsciously. Um, I was educated in the UK, um, and I went to Oxford University and got my first degree in philosophy, politics, and economics. And then I largely worked in what would generally be called management consultancy or broad-based consultancy after I had trained as an accountant. Um, Now, that took me um, working both for technology firms like Oracle, but also ultimately in the City of London on what you'd call large-scale business transformation programs in those days. So, it was around change management, project management, and it was usually um, around when a large organization faced a significant change which it needed to roll out across its operations um, worldwide. Um, So that could have been anything from cash management, human resource change, or indeed regulatory change. Um, The tail part of my experience in that regard was actually in the City of London around the 2007 um, financial crisis, where a lot of the change the banks were going through Um, was around regulatory change uh, and obviously regulatory pressures. Um, And I worked one bank which was classified as one of the ones too big to fail, so it had to implement a lot of um, (laughs) new compliance measures and also report to regulators around the world in terms of what they were then called living wills, how how it was structured, how you would unpick it, how it was controlled. However, after a good sort of 10, 15 years in the UK, I actually decided to move back home in Ghana, and that was purely a personal decision, um, and it's just on instinct. Um, And I actually moved back to Ghana in late 2010, um, and was there sort of early 2011. And that was actually quite a pivotal year in terms of, I think, compliance in Africa, because it was the year the UK introduced its Anti-Bribery Act, 2010. And so at that point, there were a large number of multinationals who realized, obviously, they fell within the net, who were looking at implementing compliance programs across their African operations. Mm -hmm. Now, I I didn't come from a compliance background. I'm not a lawyer. um, But at that point, essentially, the skill set they were looking for was essentially people who could understand regulation or new laws and translate that into compliance frameworks, processes, and controls across multiple operations. So in that respect, my consultancy background was very relevant. <laughs> yeah, so um, I then uh, subsequently spent a good eight, nine years, and have been since, working in compliance across Africa. So um, usually I'd, I have experience from South, East, um, West Africa, both Francophone and English-speaking countries. Um, and the titles they gave the the roles were either head of compliance, in some cases it was called head of integrity, Mm -hmm. some companies merged it with corporate social responsibility, but essentially I gained experience of uh, compliance in East Africa, primarily Kenya, West Africa, both English and French speaking, and South Africa.
0: Oh wow, and so then you know Uh, After that, you somehow you started. um, You were doing working in corporations, and now have started your consultancy. Um, What's the most exciting thing about your consultancy and being in Africa right now for um, for business businesses in general?
1: Um, I think uh, the the key, the most exciting thing is I think the energy and the opportunity for impact. Um, There is a lot of innovation going on in Africa, Um, and there are some areas and some industries where you could argue that it's kind of ahead of the Western world, partly because of maybe lack of infrastructure. So, we all know, in terms of mobile money and things like fintech, how um, the the pace of development in Africa in in that space has been significant. Um, And I think, basically, the, the key most exciting thing about being in compliance in Africa is the opportunity for impact in that regard, because quite often business is moving much faster than regulation. Um, And I know that's common around the world, but it really is um, more so in the African context. So the opportunity to have impact on industries um, and to shape the direction of discourse and um, discussion, and also, um, I guess, to change the narrative, because um, the story around Africa historically is always... um, uh, tarnished with, with preconceived ideas, and it depends who's reporting. Um, but as we know, in, in the past sort of five years, you know, you've seen major technologies move in there, whether it's Facebook, whether it's Google, and it's AI research, etc. So, the narrative is slowly changing, and there's a lot going on on the ground, um, and the compliance and regulatory element of it is quite important for sustainability.
0: Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. no, I think that really is interesting. Um, And with that, what trends are you also
1: seeing um, come out
0: as a result of some of that? Um,
1: I think that some of the trends are quite similar to what you have going on in the Western world. Definitely because of the focus on mobile data, fintech, um, and the move to digitalization, there is a significant focus on, I guess, privacy, um, information, and information security. So that area of compliance definitely around data is significant and a growing area. Um, I think also in the case of Africa, whether you're talking public sector or private sector, um, the process is being accelerated because uh, we may not necessarily in many countries be actually an automated or digital society in many respects. So you're almost going through a process of digitization, moving manual records into um, digital records. And then you're going through the faster process of digitalization where people are talking of digital strategies for business. So the process is being compressed. um, And therefore, once again, the compliance elements around that are significant. Um, I think with that is obviously companies are adopting um, technology which has AI embedded in it. It may be the early strings of technology, but if you look at banking, um, once again, if you look at FinTech and mobile um, telco companies operating the financial sector, a lot of the technology they deploy has inbuilt AI on it, which is using whatever algorithms to make decisions. (laughs) Um, So there there are ethics concerns around that, there are compliance elements around that, and there are regulatory elements around that, which are significant. and then, what you said? I was just going to say
0: that I thought was really interesting about that too was sort of how it was a little bit different from the financial standpoint um, in in Africa, where people may be using the um, some of the different the um, the Bitcoin or other sorts of technology for banking. Um, so, I was just wondering, is that part of this as well?
1: Um, yes, it is. I mean, I think uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Not as developed, although there are elements where, I mean, they are being used as currencies um, in East Africa. So, yes, you're right, that, that's a significant angle. Um, I also think, essentially, the focus on um, mobile and also how you identify individuals is significant because, obviously, in the context of Africa, you're not dealing with, um, like you would in the Western world, and the financial services where everyone can buy, be identified necessarily by an address. Um, or a location right, right, or right, right, parameters. Right. So once again, the compliance frameworks and the analysis around um, this area of work is significantly different, if, even if the principles remain the same. Yeah, yeah. And what about you know transparency and bribery? Um, yeah, I think that, that that's a significant area and always remains a significant area. Um, especially as there is a significant move, obviously, in many countries towards private sector, public sector partnerships and engagements um, to fund large-scale infrastructure development. As always, there are still the donor-funded projects and a significant um, NGO sector. So um, that is a significant area and remains a significant area of compliance to be looked at. Yeah. So... So to
0: change the topic a little bit, um, the first time I heard you speak, it really, as I mentioned at the beginning, really stuck with me, how you stuck with, you know, talked about how the narrative and story is important in Africa and how that difference from, differs from U.S. and Western culture in that written or written documents or written agreements are so significant, but the, the verbal word and bond was something that I just thought was so fascinating and, and, and I've never forgotten it. So I, you know, can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Um, yes, certainly. I mean, I think, obviously, Africa is not one country. There are, there are many countries in it, so we need to be cognizant of that. But I think there are um, some significant s- similarities um, and characteristics you can, you can take into account. Um, I think one is that largely African cultures, many of them tend to be quite significantly and heavily oral. Um, and by that, I mean, you will have many languages in Africa which are, are spoken, but not necessarily written. I also, given the traditions and the cultures, um, storytelling is deep. And then I think if you add to that economically, um, because you have varying literacy rates in countries, once again, the spoken word will therefore be a lot more significant because you're not dealing with a population that is 100% um, totally literate. So from an impact perspective of any policies, programs, or indeed compliance or regulation one wants to put in place, you cannot always rely on the written word. I mean, even governments, um, (laughs) you know, have to manage that context. So it really is something that needs to be taken into account when one is um, putting in place compliance frameworks. Um, I also think that basically where you're dealing with, um, and I think that there's a very good example of this, with a writer called Erin Meyer in her book called The Culture Map actually deals with this very well. But if you take all those cultural elements I've mentioned, um, and then put it also in a context where you are dealing with some countries where institutions are weak or legal processes may not work as quickly as um, are needed, then the word and the verbal commitments and relationships are really what are fundamentally important. No one is saying the written word and the contract is not, but ultimately what you need to know to make sure that either your, your process, your control will work is really um, the heart and mind and the response, the verbal response of people. So I think that's a significant aspect which needs to be taken into account when actually in practically implementing compliance frameworks um, and putting them into processes and operational procedures um, for um, individuals and organizations. Yeah,
0: No, and that actually ties into the next thing. I mean, talking about, and, and you said it, right, in how many cultures, languages, um, you know, different things going on throughout different countries and regions in Africa, you know, you've talked a lot about the importance of taking on uh, local culture and context into your strategies. Um, you know, what would be your best advice having been in so many different, um, you know, so many different regions and countries, both in Africa and Western side. And, uh, what are the challenges?
1: Um, I think the, the best, the best way to look at this is, um, really to focus ultimately on the outcome that one wants to achieve through um, whatever compliance and compliance strategy or goals, because that will generally be universal whether you're in an African context or a Western context. And it's therefore the method. Um, And once people um, get that, uh, it makes it slightly easier because everyone has the end goal in sight. Um, It's really important just to... I think, almost like consider um, cultural norms, um, cultural beliefs, and human psychology. Um, And I think one example I'd use is maybe the response people may have to incentives. I know in a Western context, and I've listened to numerous um, sort of uh, compliance um, programs where you have uh, people like Richard Bistrong commenting on the importance of aligning incentives with... um, Organizational goals and also ultimately compliance goals. And that is so, so, so important and equally important in Africa. However, I think, I mean, I can give an example where people's response to incentives based on culture may not be different. I once, uh, the example is as follows I once worked for a company where actually um, it was customary at the end of the year for the company to essentially give employees internal employees hampers based on grade. There would be a different value associated. And the employees would be given physical hampers with various sort of foodstuffs to help them with a the Christmas celebration.
0: So, And, and for those in the, on the Western side, when you say a hamper, you mean sort of like a food basket? Yeah, like
1: a food basket. Um, mm-hmm. So with, you know, drinks, um, rice cakes, <laughs> whatever you use right. to celebrate Christmas. Um, and um, there was a new CEO who was a, an expat. Um, and because obviously logistically there's a cost (laughs) if you're covering a whole country it was actually a (laughs) telco company of having these hampers move across the country to all the different centers so his um offer or suggestion was that actually the amount of the value of the hamper be increased and instead of giving employees the physical hamper you give them more money yeah or vouchers or cash vouchers or whatever um now, I'm sure in a Western context, or I don't want to make too many assumptions, but if you give somebody the choice of a physical gift, which is worth, let's say, I don't know, $20, and a cash voucher, which is worth $50, with the option that they can then go and choose what they want, Western culture, I'm guessing, would go towards the $50 because you, you have that individual choice focus. Mm-hmm. Now, in this context, actually, when it was actually surveyed, it was more important for the employees to have the hamper given to them by their employer because the significance of the fact that the employer had taken time to actually choose the contents um, and give it to them was actually of more significance. So it was not about value. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that's a bit abstract from compliance, but it does give you an indication of how people may respond differently to incentives in the context of culture. And if you are therefore looking at aligning incentives With organizational goals to achieve specific compliance strategies i use that just as an example of how um, one needs to take local context and culture into account
0: so i mean i think also i mean one thing to to remember um as well for us is that while that would probably be a story that's illustrative of a commonality or a common view throughout africa um you know what may work in one one country or region is that may not have may not in the next so um just if I'm also saying that, is it's important to get some support in understanding the, ver- um, the different variety within
1: different local cultures or contexts as well. So Yes, it is. Very much so. Yes, that that's critical. Yeah.
0: And, um, you know, what about talking about some of the outcomes? Um, you know, I know that you've also thought about, you know, what processes, you know, to look at what the sort of the end goal is the outcomes versus the process versus process versus outcome. I know there are some things where, you know, that is also really important.
1: Um, yes, I think so. And I think sometimes um, I, the best examples of these are usually if um, organizations have companies which um, particularly fits, uh processes involving a sales force which interacts with um, either the public sector or public sector institutions. Now, I, I don't say that specifically because of the bribery is, but sometimes a lot of processes, um, particularly if they're in big international companies, assume um, a certain level of infrastructure <laughs> that the <laughs> public sector will have, which you will not necessarily have in um, some African countries. So, um, for example, I once again, working with companies where, for example, Um, big infrastructure companies where where they wanted there's damage to the equipment, um, it was traditional internationally for the purposes of their international insurance to make sure they got, for example, police reports from the locality as evidence that, let's say, a piece of equipment had been damaged or they got some sort of customs statement when they are actually shipping goods in because that's another example. Now, the challenge is um, if we take the customs example, um, in in a Western economy where you've got lots of e-government and the, the, the amounts and who you should pay, what you should pay will probably be very clear. It'll probably be very transparent information and it'll be public information. Um, sometimes, particularly, and I know many people working in trade compliance will have challenges. In some African countries, the, the amounts you may have to pay on customs for Different types of goods, if you're importing, may not necessarily be so clear. And then, therefore, navigating um, the public sector framework to find that information will itself be a challenge. And so the approach to getting that information and, let's say, your, your process in terms of importation and getting information and documentation cannot, therefore, to achieve the outcome, be the same, even though it's the same outcome we want hmm yeah so all right
0: um and I guess we've talked a, uh, a bit about this but are there any other things you want to say about from compliance in Africa um is there any any other important things you want to to share about that before we kind of move on to you know being a woman and women in Africa and women in compliance
1: um I think really I have said most of the key points um I I'd say the The only additional thing to add is really um, listen and hear, Um, because quite often um, I I think the solutions and the challenges are available to anyone who's operating in Africa if you just listen to what people are saying about the challenges they have. Because usually it's about the process or challenges about the infrastructure or um, it's just about differences in culture. Um, And I always come back to my quote if the, for Maslow, if the only tool you have is a hammer, then every problem will look like a nail, um, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's important just to remove um, specific assumptions that one may have and actually listen to what's being said on the ground.
0: Okay, I mean, this is always just so fascinating to me. Um, And what else is interesting, both in your UK, Europe, um, primarily, and Africa, have you found any challenges for you as a woman um, being in, in, in compliance, uh, you know, culturally or others to talk about, you know, that you've learned from and, and built your career?
1: Um, oh, I think this is a bit of a tricky question because it, um, it's quite dependent on individual perspectives and also what you, you experience and what you encounter. Um, I would say generally, whether I was working in UK or Europe or, um, or indeed Africa now, I can't say that I'm, I'm conscious of anything that has come my way because specifically I'm a woman. I think there may have been instances um, where because I'm a minority, particularly working in the Western world, um, that may have been a challenge. However, that said, it may just be a case of how we filter things because um, I'm conscious of, you know, certain behaviors that, you know, many women experience um, having happened to myself, you know, where you come up with an idea in a meeting and um, it's not really taken into account until somebody else says that and it's usually a man and then suddenly the idea becomes a good one. We've all been there. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I usually don't just take that as a, as a personal development point because in the end you've got to learn how to communicate to, to make the impact. Um, I think sometimes women, we, we could use um, the fact that usually we, we are... We can talk with a smile and may seem less threatening in our approach. And I think that's quite helpful in the context mm-hmm. of compliance because it makes it easier to build um, alliances. Um, mm-hmm. And, it's, and, you know, and that, that is very useful because compliance, to execute compliance effectively, whatever organization you need to build alliances yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um,
0: you know, I think we all have unique challenges. Um, you know, I remember one of our earlier podcasts. It, it was with Stephanie Davis at Volkswagen, and I think a lot of us think about it a lot when she was just like, you know, you feel like you might be the one person in the in a room, um, but you're not the only one thinking that. All the other people are feeling some of their uniqueness as well, whether it's you know, men, women from different places, American, not depending on where you are. So I do find that a particularly you know, interesting topic as well, especially given your experience. Yeah, and given your experience, so the last thing I wanted to ask is if, if you have any mentoring points or advice you'd like to give um, to, to others from your experience.
1: Um, I think uh, the most important thing I'd say is um, I think it's quite important individually to be very clear on your personal why, as in why you want to be working in compliance or why you want to be working in what is a specific area that you're working in um, and then following on from that what you feel or believe you stand for um, those two things are critically important and i think once you've got those two things the, the third element which i think is most important for impact and for progress is making sure that that why and what you personally stand for is what others believe you to stand for <laughs> Because we all know that we can have um, a personal view and have a belief about, about ourselves, but really for impact, it is through our interactions and what people perceive and believe about us, um, which has the impact and ultimately, which I think provides the progress in careers. So I'd say that, that, that's a critical point, And I think that can just be demonstrated by what you do and also clear communication. Yeah, sticking to your word. Yeah. Um, I think the only other thing I'd say is um, from a compliance perspective specifically, I think uh, compliance is getting saved. It's not just about adding value through protection of an organizational business. I mean, we all know that's important, but I think increasingly compliance and compliance officers need to be seen to be adding value to the business strategically. Um, And so I think that it's really important um, if working in compliance to make sure that one understands the business or goals of the organization you work for um, end to end. And also you can see it from the different perspectives of the different units of that organization because that will enhance basically your compliance approach. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Um, we really, really appreciate
0: it, um, you being here. I personally, as, as Letitia knows well, um, I keep talking about how much I'm looking forward to visiting her in Ghana and seeing Africa, in part because of some of these discussions, and there's so much to learn. Um, one thing you and I have also talked a lot about is the importance of networks, and I feel so fortunate to have you as a friend in my network, and for those that are also listening, I would give that advice, you know, whenever you are at an event, or you meet someone, or you hear this today, and you want to learn more, um, please get in touch. So, with that, um, thank you again so much for being here. And uh, fine. And um, on behalf of Mary and I and the um, Corporate Compliance Insights Clyde's Podcast Network, um, you know, thank you so much for
1: listening. And uh, Letitia, it has been a pleasure. Thank you, Lisa. It's been a great honor to be part of the podcast. Thanks.